Hello! And welcome to the not-so-friendly edition <laughs> of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. We have Emily Peck, the great IP journalist. She is now the queen of the Huffington Post, but in a previous life you were... I was the executive editor of IP Law and Business magazine. This awesome magazine. That is, is it still alive? It's defunct oh, uh, because the internet. We are going to talk about intellectual property law and business, which is going to be fun. We have Anna Shemansky here. Hello. Who is going to explain everything you need to know about the Fed and rate cuts and what that means. We are going to also talk about antitrust and Google and Facebook and what the U.S. government is going to do with these tech giants. We are even going to have a whole Slate Plus segment about Fiat Chrysler not buying Renault after having a, a Slate segment about Fiat Chrysler buying Renault last week. You know, business and finance news. Dizzying. Never boring. And somewhere in there, we are going to talk about ice cream, which is very exciting. So all of that is coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Um, so I think we should start with the Fed since we had the jobs report this morning. Every so often we should do this. And Emily's just like, what is this, a finance and markets show? <laughs> I mean, the Fed's conversation is just like, are they going to raise the rates? Or are they going to lower the rates? <laughs> are they going to raise the rates or are they going to They might lower, lower the, rates? the rates. That's the current buzz about the Fed. They're meeting soon and they might lower the rates. After they raise the rates, Trump didn't like them raising the rates. And now, coincidentally, they might lower the rates. I, they're not lowering because the rates. Trump's tariffs <laughs> is helping the economy kind of slow down. That's my takeaway. And that's every Fed story. And I'm sorry. I know it's heresy, but I don't care. Convince me that it's more interesting than I think. Well, there's a couple of things going on here. First thing, on Friday, we had this jobs report, which was very disappointing. It was a low number for the number of jobs created in May. But also also what happened is they revised down the numbers from April and March, right? And so what that means is it's not just the tariffs, because the tariffs weren't cutting in in March, that there's like a a there's evidence of a broader slowdown. Okay. And so, and and the other thing that happened was the wage growth started slowing down as well. And so there's really no conceivable reason why you would feel the need to raise rates in this kind of environment, right? So what we had 
for a while there was this thing called the tightening cycle where the Fed would raise rates by like a quarter point every other meeting and they were just sort of like they would be on this plan. And then Jay Powell sort of took them off the plan. He's like, well, why are we doing this? Why don't we wait to see some data and then react to the data as it emerges rather than just setting ourselves on a course and, you know, sticking our fingers in our ears and our hands over our eyes and just like raising rates, you know, oblivious to the broader context. And so now the data seems to have arrived. No, but I, th- I think that what they were doing earlier was also data driven. I think that unfortunately, Jay Powell has not done a great job of communication, <laughs> as we saw particularly at the end of last year. And I think towards the end of last year, there was this idea that the Fed was going to be much more hawkish than the market thought the numbers bore out. And now that has definitely changed because the data has changed. But I also... And, and I want to I want to push back a little bit on this whole communication thing, because this is actually what I'm going to be writing about in my Axios Edge newsletter this week. <laughs> oh, wow. so Exclusive preview. Exclusive preview. We had basically, I want to say from 2011 onwards, we had this Fed mostly Bernanke and a little bit and, and, and Yellen, which were really into telling the markets quite clearly what the Fed was going to do in the future. And that was actually really useful after the financial crisis, because especially when rates were at zero, you can't just, just keeping rates at zero. If you want to do more than that, what more can you do? You can do your quantitative easing, but there's one other thing you can do is you can promise, you can make a credible promise that you will keep rates at zero for a long time in the future as well. And that's effectively another form of easing. And so what you wound up getting was this idea that the Fed would clearly communicate what it was going to do in the future and would bind itself to a future course of action. And then the markets kind of got used to that after, you know, eight years of it or something like that. And these things called dot plots, which people came completely obsessed by, they started becoming really quite used to the idea that the Fed was going to tell them what it was going to do. And then what Jay Powell did was he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do because I haven't got the data yet. And so you're going to have to just wait and see. And I don't, and the markets kind of freaked out about that. And as Anna said, like, you know, this is a bad job of communication. Well, he didn't communicate what he was going to do, but that was a truthful communication that he didn't know what he was going to do. Well, I think the when he was saying that the basically like they were on autopilot, like probably not the word you want to use. And I, I mean, you can also blame investors for this a little bit. I think specifically like what we're seeing now, because I think now we have a case where in the the market is way ahead of the Fed in terms of they're already pricing in three 25 basis points cuts. So when he comes out and says something that's pretty benign, basically like, yeah, we're going to see what happens with the tariffs and we're going to try to maintain this you know, ongoing expansion. They're like, OK, that means that I guess we're going to get those cuts. And that's not really what he said. So I have three questions for you. The first one is there's a lot of talk about rate cuts as an insurance policy. The idea being that if you do a small cut now, that will keep the economy growing, if not growing as fast as it maybe was, and will help prevent a recession and obviate the need for a much larger cut in the future, which we probably don't even have space for since we only have 200-odd basis points to cut before we hit zero. Does that make economic sense? Is that like the ideal monetary policy that you do a little cut now and it's and it effectively will keep the expansion going on indefinitely? Well, not necessarily indefinitely, but I think the fear is what you just said, is that if they 
don't act and do something small, then if you see a significant pullback, then they would have to react in a more like equally significant way. And they don't have the space to do that now. But I think when you say, like, is this ideally what we should be doing? The answer is absolutely no one knows because we have never been in this particular circumstance before. OK, next question. As you say, the markets have got ahead of the Fed. They've priced in a whole bunch of rate cuts, which haven't happened yet. And there seems to be a lot of worry or expectation in the markets that if the Fed doesn't cut in July, if not in June, if it doesn't cut this summer, then all hell will break loose because the markets have basically said, hey, guys, we're expecting this. And if you don't do it, we are going to throw a tantrum. Is that true? And would it be bad if they did? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly possible that when you're already pricing in a certain amount of support from the central bank, and then if that support doesn't arise, that is going to affect how you anticipate earnings moving forward. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, the cost of capital will change with rate. It's not that as much. A lot of it is about sentiment. Part of the reason that we've been able to have an expansion for as long as we have is because there's been this belief that these central banks will kind of step in and support things. So now if that idea is challenged, if all of a sudden we start to see some bad numbers and not even just the jobs numbers, but, you know, CapEx declining, industrial production decline. So a number of negative things. If we're not seeing the Fed supporting the economy, that is then going to affect how businesses actually plan for the future. So next question, is there any harm to throwing up a 25 basis point cut this month? What is the reason why the Fed would not do that, given everything you've just said? I do think it's unlikely they're going to see a cut this month. And usually when you start an easing cycle, it's usually 50 basis points. But who knows, because we're so close. But uh, that's pedantic. But (laughs) I think part of how the Fed works and part of the reason that they've been relatively successful is because people trust that what they say is what they're going to do. The reason I say that is because if all of a sudden they start saying, well, we're simply going to be reacting very quickly to market sentiment. And we don't feel that we have actually the the numbers in the real economy to back that up. That can then call into question how much investors can trust the Fed's long-term policy. So you're saying saying the, the May jobs report notwithstanding, they still don't have really enough macroeconomic data to justify a rate cut. Yeah, this is the problem. And they probably will do one in July. And likely they'll have more data to support that. But right now, I mean, you still do have, you know, consumer sentiment very high. You still, you know, you have a number of things still above trend growth. It's hard to say that in this environment, okay, we absolutely need a rate cut. I guess my question there is like, let's grant that we don't need a rate cut. We have inflation, which is running well below target and has been well below target for a decade now. Mm -hmm. The only reason to raise rates on some level is because you're worried that inflation is going to be above target. No one is worried about that. So again, just on the basis of an insurance policy, even if you don't have the data showing that you should cut rates because the economy is weak, even if the economy is fine, so long as it's not going to overheat and cause inflation, why not take out that insurance policy by cutting rates? Yeah. And to a certain extent, I think you're onto something there. And I think if you've listened over the past week with a lot of the Fed governors talking, what you're hearing more and more of is this idea that, you know, we may really have to rethink how 
Fed policy works because we've had not just cyclical changes in the economy, but clearly structural changes that are affecting inflation, that are keeping inflation low. The fact that we've had uh, changes in technology, technological disruption and globalization. And as a result of that, then maybe we can do a little bit more like inflation averaging where, you know, you could let inflation actually go above 2% for a little while because it's been below for so long or... Not that a 25 basis point cut would cause that anyway. No, no, no. Honestly, (laughs) because of these structural changes, it's unlikely that a 25 basis point cut is going to do anything for inflation. So on the one hand, it changes how we view the way the Fed views inflation, but it does also change whether you could allow the economy to seemingly get a little bit hotter without having to worry so much about inflation because of these other structural forces. Having said that, though, I just want to point out one thing that you have to worry about as well, as opposed to just inflation, is creating bubbles. Right. So this is exactly the, the problem that we faced in the past with Alan Greenspan and even to a certain extent with Bernanke, was that they looked at inflation and said, there's no inflation if there's no inflation, why can't we have low interest rates? Low interest rates are good for employment. We have a dual mandate. So let's keep rates low. That will help the employment front. And there's nothing to worry about on the inflation front. And it makes sense except for that it creates these asset bubbles. And sometimes asset bubbles are kind of bad, like we saw in 2000 with a dot-com crash. And sometimes they're absolutely disastrous, like we saw in 2008. So, yeah, at some point, the markets have to go down. Like, you can't have a bull market forever. And when that happens, the Fed is going to panic and the Fed is going to feel like they have to cut rates. And it's kind of useful for them to have a bit of room for them to. Right. And that's my question. So, you're saying the job numbers today are a signal that there's a slowdown, but they weren't terrible jobs numbers. The unemployment rate is still very low. Yeah. If there is indeed a slowdown, why? Exactly. And this is and this is the thing which I'm struggling with myself, which is that I was screaming at the Washington Post this week when I saw a op-ed by the great wise man, Mr. Lawrence Summers, who was like, any recession would be catastrophic. And I was like, huh? And I think the entire country is actually in this kind of weirdly febrile state where the memories of 2008 are so fresh still that the mere hint of the word recession kind of brings up demons in people's minds of, oh my God, that means we're going to have another financial crisis. And certainly, you know, stock prices are elevated enough and markets are frothy enough that a relatively small recession could have pretty large effects in the stock market even if not in the broader economy. But my feeling is that a relatively mild recession, you know, a couple of quarters of negative growth and you just keep on going and unemployment stays low and, you know, the markets fall, but the economy still remains vaguely strong, would not in any way be catastrophic. You know, in in the worst case scenario, it would be like 2000, which was basically fine if you didn't live in San Francisco. Right, and I think it's, in fact, not only you know, just benign, but I think it's actually healthy to a certain extent that if you create this idea that, you know, central banks are never going to allow there to be another recession, you do create some perverse incentives. And I think, you know, part of what we've been seeing in, you know, in the U.S. in corporate sector, just like the amount of debt that's being piled up 
and amount of low quality debt that's being piled up. And yeah, that's a rate story as well. But that's also, you know, it has to do with this idea of this kind of ongoing expansion. And I think that's why you need to allow market cycles to occur, because if you don't, what ends up happening is then you kind of you know, it, it's like the balloon. You're kind of pulling it in one area and you just create more vulnerabilities in another area. So not that we know what the Fed's going to do, but it seems pretty – I'm going to say it's pretty clear what the market consensus is, which seems to be the Anna Shemansky consensus as well, <laughs> which is they're going to meet in June. They're going to not cut in June, but they're going to signal that there's a very high chance of a rate cut in July and then they'll probably cut in July. Okay. Yeah. You heard it here. Boom. <laughs> Are the tariffs going to cause inflation? Because prices could go up. It's right? such a good prices. question. Right. I yeah. love that question. Because I mean, uh, prices are really low. Like when you talked about prices going up last week, like I remember a few weeks ago, my husband was like, how much do we pay for milk? And we were like, mm. It's like not a <laughs> yeah. big deal. Well, I mean, food, we're not very food, poor. Food but. prices in general, there's been this long-term secular trend that food prices have gone from being like 40% of the average household budget to like 5%. Right. And like the things that we worry about in terms of price inflation is just not food. It's other things. Or clothes. It's, are but it's certainly things too. like right. housing, health insurance. Right. You know, there are other things which we do worry about. Right. And those things are crazy expensive and have been getting more and more expensive. But like all those basic things right. are and not. Not that housing and health insurance aren't basic. Right. They are. You're right. They are very basic. No, but when we I just mean the things that when we think of we think of like kind of but I think stuff you buy at Walmart. But that's but that's the interesting thing about tariffs is that they will increase the price of things that you buy at Walmart, Mm -hmm. but the amount of the household budget that has been going to right. Walmart has been going steadily down. Right. That's why I partly think because Walmart deal. has been doing such a good job of bringing prices right. down. And so if those prices go up a bit, like you have significant price inflation on things like bicycles. Mm-hmm. But like we don't actually spend that much of our household right. budget on bicycles and the big picture items which are the housing and the health insurance and stuff like that. That the tariffs are not going to have an effect on that. Right. So even if tariffs make consumer prices a lot higher, they're so low to begin with that it might not be like a thing. Well, that's such a small part of the uh, overall basket. basket. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's talk antitrust. Are we going to talk about sort of the big tech reckoning? Yes. Can we talk about the big tech reckoning? Yes. So the Democrats, the politicians are turning against tech, sort of. So this week we saw the House Judiciary Committee say that they're going to do a big investigation into the FANG, into Facebook, Apple, Google, blah, 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 maybe more. And um, Nancy Pelosi said, like, the era of self-regulation is over. And then meanwhile, the FTC may launch an investigation into Amazon. They're already investigating Google. There's just a lot of anti-tech sentiment happening. And it seems like politicians on the left and the right, because Republicans are sort of anti-tech Also, there's sort of like a bipartisan agreement that something must be done. But it's not really clear what 
is going to be done. We know Elizabeth Warren has said she wants to break up Facebook, but I don't think that's like a serious plan on anyone's agenda. Oh, it's hers. it's definitely a serious plan on lots of people's agenda yeah. in like maybe outside Capitol Hill. Like, outside there Capitol. are very detailed plans, which we've talked a lot about this whole like hipster antitrust thing on this show mm-hmm. in the past, sort of explaining why and how you might do that. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to Joe Stiglitz about his book, like he has a whole 30 pages of his book is just devoted to like how you interpret antitrust law to break up Facebook. So it's entirely, you know, it, this is a fully fledged plan. Yes. But I think that's not what's happening. In I think DC. you're right that the Capitol Hill consensus, especially if you want to bring the Republicans along, has not got to that point yet. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, if you look at the Europeans who have historically been ahead of the Americans on, you know, worrying about big tech companies from an antitrust perspective or a monopolist perspective, they, you know, they put in GDPR, which was like a consumer protection for data. Mm-hmm. But again, they don't seem to have been putting any pressure on these companies to break themselves up. Well, because there's also a question of whether that's what they should do. I I, I think... So, 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 but I mean, put that to one side because we've had that conversation in the right. past. If that's not the solution, then what is the solution? I mean, I think that... Pretty much everybody can agree that our antitrust laws have not kept up with the way industry has changed, obviously. But I don't think the answer to that is say, okay, let's go back to 1911. I think instead you can think of, well, one, if you're talking about mergers in the future, that there probably should be more scrutiny of when you appear to have companies kind of buying their competitors in utero. The the classic example being Facebook buying Instagram. You know, I I think you can also talk about maybe at some point there being like independent third bodies to kind of arbitrate disputes between on Amazon, say, between like Amazon and their sellers, because that's a concern. I mean, I think there are things like that. I think that if you're talking about the use of data, which is, I think, moving forward, I think going to be one of the biggest issues, because if you're talking about how consumers are being affected, well, obviously, we're getting a lot of these services, quote unquote, for free, but we are paying with our data. So at a certain point, especially as data becomes like what you use to create like the AI of the future, whether you're going to have to make these companies like Google and Facebook have to essentially like license out the use of their data. That's and, something and, and, else. To yeah. And then the other thing is, I think we need to have a real, like, a regulator with teeth that is regulating monopsony power. By which I mean, if you are, say, Apple's app store, and every single person who makes an app needs to be on your store, and you just say, well, I'm going to take 30% of the revenues because I can, because you need to be on my store, that is a monopsony which can and should be regulated. And there's no reason why the government can't step in there and say, no, 30% is way too much. You should offer it for free or just take maybe like 1% or, you know, there's a bunch of things which the government could do there. Similarly, if you are, a you know, a relatively small online retailer, there is a huge need for you to be on Amazon and to be part of that like Amazon fulfillment system and like be on Amazon Prime and stuff. Otherwise, like no one buys your stuff. And again, you know, Amazon is is just dictating the prices for all that, right? They know that they hold all of the bargaining cards. And when you have that degree of asymmetry between like the tech giant and the small guy who's trying to, you know, sell cat blankets on Amazon or whatever, then again, I think there's definitely scope for the government to step in and say, 
just because you're so big and can dictate terms doesn't mean you can just make up you know, the worst terms possible. Like the government is going to step in and say, no, make it easier, make it cheaper. I mean, I think I think people are saying like Kara Swisher had a column and she said maybe regulation would have been good, but Congress doesn't really understand tech and they're going to screw it up. But I think we don't know what they're going to do. And the fact that they're just saying we're going to spend six months investigating is actually a good thing because we want to understand deeply how these monopsonies work, how these how these giant tech companies do potentially violate antitrust law in a new way since they are technically free. I feel like political sentiment has turned against tech since 2016. Like it's been like a 180. Like before, during the Obama administration, they love tech so much. And tech was seen as this really benign, you know, companies for the good. Like it, it's really been remarkable. Like I think uh, I can't remember where I read this, but um, Facebook's like customer rating or approval feel good rating from, you know, regular normals is now in line with Wells Fargo, which is like wow. the worst bank ever. And, you know, people hate Wells Fargo. We do hate Wells Fargo. They're really bad. There's, um, there's not a lot of redeeming features to Wells yeah, Fargo. Yeah, sentiment, consumer sentiment rating. So I feel like we don't know exactly how the regulations would look. And there's plenty of reason to be skeptical that Congress, which is filled with these like old white guys who really don't know how tech works in a deep way like it's a series of tubes <laughs> whatever like they'll figure it out i mean i mean this anyway is... this is why it's good to have you know just take a look poke around see no, what but i think i think the one this is one place where democracy kind of sort of is working in america is that normal americans you know politicians constituents have changed their mind on tech mm-hmm. and are now mistrustful as opposed to excited and their elected representatives have listened to their constituents and they're like oh okay like this is not a party political issue for them they're just like listening to their constituents and they can be in kansas or texas or anywhere it's not like and their constituents are saying yeah i don't like how big and powerful these tech companies are can you do something about it yeah i mean i I, though i do kind of hope when you know we're thinking about the regulations that you know hopefully will come down the line that they will be smarter regulations that are more about actually seeing what the harms are and trying to kind of mitigate that as opposed to just attacking the big bad tech companies because like these are companies that are kind of the basis of our current economy in a lot of ways well they're... i mean well that's that's an interesting concept which i think is you know they would say that but you know Part of the reason why they are the basis of the economy is precisely because they have this monopoly power. And like, if you had a more vibrant economy, there is a definitely a strong case to be made to say that like, if you had a more vibrant economy and many, many more smaller tech companies competing with each other, that would actually be better. I, I think that that's yeah. somewhat unlikely, though, because especially if you see what most people think the tech world is going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years. It, you you hear people saying basically you're going to have s- significant U.S. companies that are going to probably control North America, South America, probably most of Europe. And then you're going to have significant Chinese companies that are going to control all of Asia, probably most of Africa. This idea that we're going to have these like teeny tiny companies that are going to be able to be like the powerhouses of the future. No, we're not, me, but that, no, but does that, that make a lot no, of No, we're not talking about powerhouses. That's the whole point. You don't need powerhouses. Yes, you do. Because otherwise you're just going to have your lunch eaten by Alibaba and Baidu and all. I mean, like, I don't, I think, I don't think that's true. I think true. that's a little overblown because, I mean, we do have small evidence in the past. Like, the classic example, I feel like we talk about it a lot, is that, you know, the U.S. went after Microsoft. And as a result, yada, 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 we have 
Google as a powerhouse but because I, Google was. And, and, but and I think went, the problem with that story against, like, is AT&T, that AT&T, right. you know, it and, went against, it, you know, Standard Oil. Like, every time you break up a big company, it turns out that the small companies turn out to be much more innovative and powerful than anyone gave them credit for. The idea that you need to be big because something, something, China something is, I think, definitely something that people believe. And like, you know, Mark Cuban will talk your ear off and tell you this. I just... I don't think it is proven, and I think it is entirely rational to believe the opposite. And I, but I also think if you're looking at where innovation comes from, where job growth comes from, where is the best, where are the best places to work? You're looking at large companies. I'm not no, saying you're not. Look yeah, at, no, I'm innovation sorry. Innovation comes, comes from small companies. That's actually job, job growth comes from small companies. It's not true. Google does not employ that many people. I mean, the big companies are one small, scrappy startups, right? And that's the point. And you want to you want encourage to, that. But to when you have come big, big companies I mean, in charge of everything, you have fewer small, scrappy startups. Not necessarily. I think especially that in, if you if Facebook goes and buys them right away. And I'm and I'm agreeing with you on certain things. I'm not <laughs> saying that we need no antitrust law. I think though this is just my criticism a little bit is that I think in the same way that I think on the right, there's this tendency to believe that like local government and state government is always better than anything big. I think on the left, there's sometimes this idea of this kind of to fetishize small businesses and it's always better than big business. And I don't think the data supports that. I don't think. And I think that as we move forward into a very different economy, I'm not saying we don't want small companies. Of course we do. And our tax code treats small companies very well. But I don't think the goal should be to weaken companies. It should be to create a better marketplace for all companies. And then look, if companies can compete, because I'm sorry, the reason Microsoft was not as dominant was not because of the antitrust. It was because they became a big bloated dinosaur and other companies then started to eat their lunch, which is what you want to happen. Yeah, but but the the, fact that they couldn't get Internet Explorer, you know, onto... Yeah, and no, I don't want to talk yeah, about that. Let's let's talk about <laughs> Google because I think that one's more interesting, which is, you know, I, I've been writing a bunch and I'll write a bit more this week as well about retail and the way that retail, like bricks and mortar retail is suffering while online retail is booming and the people who want to create online brands... Um, one of the very interesting things that they are there are successful people who have done it, but there's a huge trend of those successful people, and we touched on this a little bit with Taffy Ackner being celebrities. And we just had Jay Z hit the billionaire list, and um, you know, there's any, any long list of Jessica Alba and Gwyneth Paltrow and Kylie Jenner and everyone else, all like being able to make money. And that one of the reasons for that is the the reach that celebrities have through Instagram especially has not been taxed by Facebook in a way that like if you're another brand you have to really pay for that distribution to get in front of people and at some point Facebook will wind up taxing that as well and will force those celebrities to you know pay a cut in order for their Instagrams to reach their audience they basically Facebook and Google in terms of commerce are touching it's not just the media industry now it's the entire like consumer facing world has to get intermediated through facebook and google and they are these gatekeepers who can take this enormous cut of everything and it really worries me on a commercial level and the idea that a small company can compete with that no they actually need to go through that in order to even begin to compete one thing i mean we're talking like it's inevitable that 
Congress will actually do something. But one thing to think about is the 2020 candidates on the Democratic side are getting tons of money from tech, big tech. And it'll be interesting to see if anything actually materializes from all this hubbub, because at the end of the day, they need the money. They need their donor money. And the donors, you know, I think it changes from candidate to candidate. I think like Pete Buttigieg is like super friendly with Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. but like Elizabeth Warren clearly isn't. Right. But Joe Biden is. He's the front runner. You know, and I mean, Silicon Valley doesn't just fund the 2020 presidential candidates. It has a lot of power and money, too, and knows how to fight this stuff off. So it'll be interesting to see if anything actually materializes. On the other hand, Facebook's head of public policy and public relations is Nick (laughs) Clegg. So let's not assume that they're that sophisticated. (laughs) For those of you who... um, don't get the reference. Just listen to our Brexit episode. Nick Clegg was not the world's most successful politician when he was a politician in the UK. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Qualcomm, because we've been wanting to talk about Qualcomm for a while, and Emily Peck, in a prior life, you were an IP journalist. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the big questions that has been like sort of floating around the substrate of slate money for a while is, is Qualcomm just a patent troll or do they actually do amazing things on the computer chips that no one else can do? Or I think I'm coming down on the side of Qualcomm does do amazing things on computer chips because it's a patent troll and yeah. it has it has a whole bunch of it abuses its monopoly power. Yeah. So we're talking about Qualcomm because they just lost this case that the FTC filed right before Obama left office, accusing Qualcomm of violating antitrust laws. Qualcomm makes chips that go into phones. And um, the chips connect to cellular networks. I'm sorry, that's all I can say about that. They're modems, basically. Yeah, modems. And Qualcomm licenses both its IP and sells the chips. And it does this in a way that the FTC said was naughty, basically. If you buy the chips, you have to license the IP. No license, no chip. No license, no chip. And and you need to pay the license on every phone you sell, even if it doesn't have a Qualcomm chip in it. Yes, exactly. So by doing this and licensing the IP and selling the chips, Qualcomm's basically been able to corner the chip market and keep other companies from selling chips. um, Because it is so unbelievably expensive to develop chips. These chips come out every like two years, 18 months to two years, there's a new generation of chips. Each new generation of chips costs, you know, a couple billion dollars to develop. And unless you know that you can have a big client, which means Apple lined Mm up, you just don't have the budget to be able to try and And that's why it's a troll slash inventor company. It's not just a troll where you go out and you threaten to sue people because you have some patents, you know, in your closet. It has the patents in its closet, but it's actually done the work, the R&D to make the chips. But so when it comes to cell phones, you have to have these like big um, standards agreements so that everyone's phones can talk to each other. So companies want to be 
their they want their IP in the standards, right? So in order to get your IP in the standards, you have to agree to something called FRAND or RAND, which is like fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory licensing fees. And Qualcomm did agree to that to be in the standards every year, like for 2G, 3G, 4G, whatever, all the standards. But the problem the FTC pointed out was like, Qualcomm was not being friendly. <laughs> so uh, there we are. And we should give a shout out here to Tim Lee at Ars Technica, who has a magnificent explainer of this entire thing, which we can put in the show notes and basically ask you to read. On the one hand, this seems pretty straightforward when you hear about a lot of the things Qualcomm does. It's mm-hmm. hard to be like, be like yeah, they're, they're, this, is clearly, this is clearly what antitrust law is designed for. But then it's, you know, on the other side, it is that they do use all of this money that they get to develop incredibly innovative technology. And the question is, will they be able to do that if they don't have this stream of money coming in? Yes, of course they will. I I don't think that's a problem. Like, the fact is that Qualcomm is, you know, the giant in the space and they can sell their chips and make money selling chips, they can't make necessarily quite as much because if you look at their P&L, they make more money licensing their patents than they do selling chips, but they still make money selling Mm -hmm. chips. So you could cut deeply into their patent licensing revenues without cutting their incentive to make money selling chips. In fact, you would increase their incentive to make money selling chips. You might increase their incentive, but you might reduce their ability. I think this case brings up really interesting patent issues because a patent is, it's a legal monopoly, right? You do cool R&D and the United States says, because you did this R&D, you're contributing to the public good and we're going to give you exclusive rights to it for a limited amount of time so you can really reap the benefits of that and it encourages innovation and blah, blah, blah. But you can't take it too far. And in this case, Qualcomm did take it too far. And it's well within, you know, Judge Coe's rights to say you took it too far. You got to roll it back. You have to lower the price you're charging for these licenses. And you can't have you can't do this. And and, see- and, the, and the clear th- reason why Coe can say this from an antitrust perspective is that Qualcomm is about as clear as a monopoly as you can find in U.S. business right now. Intel, which is no minnow right intel is a big motherfucking company and they were trying to build a 5g chip and apple desperately tried to break its extremely expensive codependent relationship with qualcomm and said no for the next round of chips we're going to go with intel you know intel Mm -hmm. knows how to make chips Mm -hmm. and even that ultimately fell apart and apple basically cried uncle and said okay fine we're going with qualcomm because it is so hard to break into this market even intel basically finds it next to impossible with the help of apple if intel and apple combined can't break this qualcomm monopoly that's evidence to me that you know qualcomm needs to be reined in a bit and it's very important that someone can compete with qualcomm intel is an obvious candidate if it's someone else that's also fine but it needs to be someone i I think i agree with you one thing that i i do wonder is if you are going to get some potential interference from the trump administration because of the role that qualcomm is playing in the trade war with China. The fact that the U.S. has this monopoly on these chips that are going to be so significant to the development of 5G technology moving forward. Yeah, I'm wondering if the Trump administration is going to try to do something to 
scuttle the or like kind of mitigate the effects of this ruling? Well, I think what's going to happen, the FTC case was filed, like I said, before during the Obama administration, three days before the inauguration of Donald Trump. And after this ruling came out, the the chair of the FTC, I think her, her name's Christine, and I wrote down her last name, but now I can't read it. She came out with a very critical op-ed in the Wall Street Journal decrying this ruling. And I wonder where it's going to go from here. Like, I I suspect with what you're saying that it gets overturned or weakened somehow and Qualcomm's allowed to sort of. So explain this to me because I don't understand. As part of the trade war, doesn't the Trump administration want to do things like prevent Huawei from using Qualcomm chips in its phones and basically, you know, reduce the the reach of Qualcomm? right, Right now, the issue is that Huawei is so vulnerable, just like ZTE was so vulnerable, because they cannot develop their technology. They cannot sell their products if they do not have access to these chips. So the fact that Qualcomm is so powerful and has like this monopoly gives the U.S. a tremendous amount of leverage. And if that is to be weakened, then maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, that could weaken the U.S.'s position. I imagine so basically, that might be what the So Trump basically, the idea is that, like, Bob Lighthizer, the trade representative, loves having Qualcomm in his back pocket and being able to threaten the Chinese with losing their access to Qualcomm, which is this big global monopolist, and that anything from the FTC or from the judicial system which threatens Qualcomm's monopoly status might be bad for Qualcomm, but it would also be bad for Lighthizer's negotiating leverage. Right. But what is ironic about this is that what you're seeing, of course, Huawei is doing is they're like literally running their offices 24 hours a day to try to do everything they can to develop the type of technology so that they will not be dependent on the U.S. And I think this is where these types of actions from the Trump administration are so dangerous because it, it may right now seem like, okay, we have this monopoly. We have this like big hammer over these people. But that's just only going to encourage the Chinese government to say, okay, we need to do everything we can to become as self-sufficient as possible. And and yeah, between China and Taiwan, like, do they have the money and the R&D abilities to create amazing 5G phone modems? Of course they do. Like, could they do it as quickly and as cheaply as Qualcomm? Probably not. But like, can they? Yes. My question is like, with a patent power abuse, it's very clear, like in the pharmaceutical industry, you see, you know, drug companies really abusing their federally granted monopolies and overcharging for medicine and and just doing all kinds of terrible things. But with Qualcomm's monopoly, like when it comes to the public good, does Qualcomm's monopoly actually damage the public good? Yeah. It certainly makes phones more expensive. Like one of the main reasons why the iPhone costs $1,000 is because a large chunk of that $1,000 winds up going to Qualcomm. I'm actually curious about those numbers because I've, I've actually never seen them to see what effect that actually has. Because right. I'd be curious as well. Because, you know, not that we're all going to just go all bork on it and say that, you know, the only thing that matters <laughs> is the effect on consumers. But it, whenever you're talking about antitrust, you have to think, OK, well, well, what is the harm here? Right. What is the harm? Could, could there be different kinds of phones out there? Like what? Like it's just hard for me to understand what the harm is, maybe because I don't understand deeply the technology, perhaps. But if you know what the harm is, email me. Well, no, I mean, the harm. I think the harm is just that the at prices. the margin phone manufacturers need to pay this tax slash rent to Qualcomm. And it's a little tax that every single person who buys a cell phone has to pay. And it just makes the economy that much less efficient as a result. So it's a true and pure monopoly in the Bork sense. I think so, yeah. Great. 
Okay, let's have a numbers round. Anna, what's your number? My number is 0.4535-9237. Really now? Nice. Yes. That, so, that, okay. <laughs> that's how uh, many kilograms there are in a pound. Oh, wait. Is this a Tucker Carlson number? No! <laughs> he was raging against the metric systems. And- <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> No, this is that's not where I was going with this. Um, what where I was going with this was that so up until a few weeks ago, the way the the kind of how we determined a kilogram was based on this hunk of metal that was kept in France. But a few weeks ago, this has now been changed. So instead, the weight is basically now determined using Planck's constant. And I think that this is actually like a nice little win for libertarians because it's like you had this unit of measure that was like bizarrely controlled by like in a way like the French government. And now it's just based on a law of nature. Poor French. I feel sorry for them. My number is 68%. He has a big chart in front of him. He does. I have a chart in front of me, which is the market share of the big delivery companies, food delivery companies, Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, Postmates, in various different markets in New York, LA, San Francisco, Washington, Chicago, Miami, Dallas. And it turns out that this is not a winner-takes-all tech ecosystem at all. If you look at America overall, Uber Eats is in third place. 22%. 22%. DoorDash is on 29%. Grubhub is on 32%. They're, they're really quite close to each other. And, you know, Postmates is non-negligible. They have a decent 10% share. So, like, they're all competing quite hard. And you don't see monopolies, really. Except there is one company in one market which has a 68% market share, which is, like, is. Un, unheard can of. We, and can we guess? No one. Yeah. Anna knows what it is, but you can guess. Is it Seamless in New York? It is Seamless in New York. Seamless has this insane lock on New York in the way that no other company has a lock on any other city. Mm-hmm. And and Seamless and Grubhub, by the way, are the same. They, they merged. Um, but it's something to do with the fact that it's been around for much longer, that it predates car delivery services. Most of the other ones delivered by car, but Seamless was always by bike. And that they started by providing services to businesses rather than individuals. And so every single person who ever worked at a law firm or a bank like had a seamless account with get food delivered. And then those yeah. people just got used to seamless and seamless was how you get your food. Mm-hmm. And then that just kind of spread. And it also, I think it, it's one of those words that is synonymous with delivery. But only mm-hmm. in New York. But only, Yeah, in New York. Like to me, it was like, you have to seamless this, you have to seamless Yeah, this. if you go to LA and say, should we seamless some food? They'll look at you completely blankly. They'll have no idea yeah. what you're talking huh. about. But if you, you walk around like Midtown East around like eight o'clock when all like the investment bankers and the kids are still like, you see them out there with the seamless people coming uh-huh. paying for their food. So yeah, very real. My number is 46 and is also food mobile food related. 46 is the number of ice cream trucks that are in process of being seized by New York City in Operation Meltdown. Uh-oh. Was someone really <laughs> proud of themselves for coming out with that? <laughs> I guess so. It's pretty good tagline. Operation Meltdown is just the New York City's going after these ice cream trucks, which apparently they do a lot of traffic violations. They park in the crosswalk. They blow red lights. And then when they get ticketed and fined, they do all this stuff where they they switch ownership of the vehicle so they don't have to pay the fines. So they've ducked out on like $4.6 million in fines, the ice cream trucks. You think they're just there for good, but sometimes they do. They have to do evil to I bring you to, the good. You I know? used to 
live above an ice cream truck stand place oh, where I, honestly oh that God, noise that sound I'm was good. It's a <laughs> it's a bad job. Like having to play that yeah. tune at high yeah. volume and be inside that truck, it's not a good job. You can see why they might like run the occasional red light. I feel like ice cream truck delivery man who is a serial killer is a frequent trope on television dramas and, or, and movies. Is, and, wasn't that like a classic like <laughs> running theme in like Cheech and Chong as well that they Possibly. always got their part from like the ice cream? Guy? Yeah, they're supposed to be benevolent, but they're kind of like clowns basically, but right. like evil clowns, scary clowns. You bad ice cream delivery guys. There's something to this. They're always but men too. Have you ever seen an ice cream delivery woman? No. If there are any ice cream delivery women who listen yes. to Slate Money, do like let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Slate Money at Slate.com. We want to hear from you. I still like ice cream trucks overall. I know they're annoying and driven by serial killers, but at the end <laughs> of the day, that. it's ice cream and it's yummy. So happy it's summer. It's quote everyone. unquote ice cream. <laughs> Little known fact, a chemist called Margaret Roberts worked for the Salmon Family Company when we were caterers, and she helped to develop Britain's first soft-serve ice cream. Oh, my God. And we created this soft-serve ice cream, and it was awesome. And so I kind of grew up in an ice cream factory, and the chemist, Margaret Roberts, went on to become Maggie Thatcher. Whoa, Felix, you're blowing my mind right now. That's amazing. Did you grow up with a lot of soft-serve ice cream? (laughs) <laughs> I like that that's where you went with that. It's like, it's like Maggie Thatcher. You're like, right, but the soft but the ice cream. <laughs> I mean, people know about her, but do they know about Felix and the Salmon family? Probably not. Yeah, I, I, I want my, my cousin Thomas Harding has written a book about the Salmon family, which is kind of fascinating. And I, yeah, I want to bring him on the show. I'd be into that. Yeah. Okay. Um, that. <laughs> We, you will learn much more about ice cream and arms manufacturing. You have no idea what we managed to get up to back in the day. But all of that is for a future episode of Slate Money. For the time being, many thanks for listening. We have a Slate Plus coming up about... Oh, it's an update. Uh, it's like, so last week on Slate Money, <laughs> yeah, we, were, exactly. we were talking about this merger in the auto industry. Turns, Turns out, out it's not happening. So oh, we're, we're, oh. we're gonna we're gonna update you on like why that entire segment of Slate Money last week was a complete waste of time and you didn't need to listen to it. Oh my god, it's a fun story. Thanks for listening to that if you're a Slate Plus member. Otherwise, thanks for listening to Slate Money. And do please keep your questions coming in. I think we're gonna have a very special Q and A episode coming up this summer. So send in questions for that, especially if they're personal finance related. Emily's into answering all your personal finance questions. That's, you know, we're going to have like a Emily mum zone. This is what you should do with your money. Keep the emails coming. Slate at slate.com. Many thanks to Jasmine Molly for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.